Hello, and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. In the wake of the January 6th attack on the Capitol, academics and journalists have increasingly considered the possibility of future political violence in America. And polls suggest it's something Americans are worried about. 62% of respondents in a recent UMass poll said they're at least somewhat concerned about violence in the 2024 presidential election. Our guest today has gone a step further. Barbara F. Walter is a political scientist at UC San Diego who has spent her career studying foreign civil wars. In her new book, How Civil Wars Start and How to Stop Them, she writes, quote, We are now closer to a civil war than any of us would like to believe. It's a bold suggestion, and today we're going to interrogate it. Sure, America is polarized, but is it headed towards war? Here with me now is Barbara F. Walter. Welcome to the show. Thank you. You worked on the Political Instability Task Force, which is a project sponsored by the U.S. government that studies domestic conflicts abroad. And as part of that task force, academics and data analysts created a predictive model, something that we're very familiar with here at 538, for when these kinds of conflicts will occur. What are you looking at to predict something as complex as a civil war breaking out? So the task force brings in people like me um, to help them brainstorm about factors that might matter. Um, So I've been studying civil wars around the world for the last 30 years. Um, I've read all of the qualitative studies, all the quantitative studies. Um, And so they bring people like me in and and they say, well, what what do you think could matter? What what have the studies found? And so we included things like poverty, income inequality, um, what we call ethnic heterogeneity, how uh, ethnically and religiously diverse a country is, uh, topographical features of a country, the size of a country, the population. So over 50 different variables that... um, people have considered potentially important. And we talk about why they're important, if in fact they are important. And then the data analysts uh, use this information to craft and to uh, maintain their model. One of the surprises were that two factors uh, came up again and again as as being the most predictive, and it wasn't the ones that people expected. The first was this variable called anocracy. That's a political science term for uh, a country whose government is neither fully democratic nor fully autocratic. It's something in between. Um, you could think of it as a partial democracy, um, as a, a weak democracy. Uh, Fareed Zakaria has called it an illiberal democracy. So it's somewhere in this middle zone. The second factor that was even more uh, predictive was whether a country's population had begun to organize itself politically, not along ideological lines, so not left, right, conservative, liberal, but really um, at least one party was was organizing around identity, so race, religion, or um, or ethnicity. And then that party sought to gain political power in order to exclude everyone else. So uh, a really classic example of what we call ethnic factionalization um, happened in the former Yugoslavia. So after the Soviet Union collapsed, Yugoslavia, Yugoslavia suddenly had the ability to hold competitive elections. It, it, it attempted to rapidly democratize. Um, 
And you saw former communists like Slobodan Milosevic, um, who knew that he could never win an election in Yugoslavia by running as a communist. Yugoslavs hated communists. (laughs) They were not going to vote for him. And he was ambitious. He wanted political power. And so um, he thought about what are the ways that he can convince Yugoslavs to vote for him. And he realized that Serbs were um, the largest ethnic group in Yugoslavia, and he was ethnically Serb. And so he he gravitated towards ethnic nationalism, and he started um, crafting a narrative. So there's a lot that I want to get into there in terms of that idea of anocracy or partial democracy and factionalism. But first, how good are these models at predicting the outbreak of a civil war in the sense of, you know, how often might countries have these two factors, but actually not experience a civil war? Yeah, that's a a great question. So, um, and again, what the data analysts on on the task force, this, you know, have said um, that if you have these two features, that you are at about a 3.4% annual risk of civil war. That sounds very small, but for it's it's actually not um, if if you're an anocracy if your country finds itself in this middle zone and it has these ethnic factions and it doesn't do anything to change that um, after 30 years the the risk of civil war is enormous and and the way I think about it is it's very similar to smoking. If, if I were to start smoking this year, my risk of dying of lung cancer this year is very small. If I continue to smoke for the next 30, 40, 50 years, my risk of, of dying from lung cancer or some, something related to smoking is much, much higher. And so what, what I find really helpful about these um, risk factors is if we know about them beforehand, we do have time to make the changes that will lower the risk. So there are some other factors, reading the research on how civil wars start, some other factors that researchers have pointed to as being strongly related to the outbreak of civil war, like extreme poverty or political instability. You know, even things like you mentioned rough terrain that would enable rebels to hide easily, certain ways to finance, you know, rebel militias, things like that. And I was reading the research of two professors at Stanford, David Layton and James Fearon, who you cite in your book. Have we moved on from thinking that those are important factors to starting a civil war or are they still relevant? Yeah, no, well, they are still important. So, um, as you know, we have, um, you know, what we have are correlations. Um, there have been studies that have looked, f- for example, at the role of extreme poverty, at the role of what we call rough terrain, whether a country has lots of potential places for rebels to hide. Um, and and there ha- we've found relationships between those two. What we don't yet know is why. So um, it is true that poorer countries tend to tend to experience more civil wars, but we don't know if it's poverty per se or if poverty is simply, um, um, you know, tends to happen at the same time that poor governance does. The World Bank every year puts out a um, world development report where they identify one factor that they believe is, is preventing 
um, uh, a development in, in poor countries. And, and they had seen these studies that showed that, that poverty seems <clears throat> um, to lead to civil war. And once you have a civil war, you have another civil war and your country becomes even poorer. And so they asked Jim Fearon at Stanford and they asked me to, um, they commissioned us to do additional research. And both of us independently found that when you included all of these measures of what we called good governance, rule of law, et cetera, et cetera, the, the, the result that poverty dropped out in terms of significance. It was no longer significant. Um, and what that indicates is that wealthy countries also tend to have higher quality democracy. And it's actually the higher quality democracy that appears to be um, driving whether you have political violence or not. Having said that, um, there, you know, economic var variables do seem to still matter. So I talk in my book about downgraded groups, these groups that had once politically been dominant and they had either lost power or they're in the process of losing power. They're the ones that tend to initiate violence. And there's been a few studies, I'm sure there will be more, people are working on this topic all the time, um, that have looked to see if it matters whether at the same time they're in political decline, whether they're also suffering economic decline. And, and that does seem to matter, that it, it, it exacerbates their, their resentment, it exacerbates their sense of decline. Um, and those groups appear uh, more likely to organize um, uh, in order to change the system. All right. So that's some of the context from looking abroad. Now, of course, the big question here is how likely do you think a second civil war in the United States really is? I, I mean, I think, you know, I stick to the model. I think every year that we remain, um, uh, and I'll talk a sec in a second about anocracy, um, every year that we don't reform our democracy and make it stronger, um, every year that we have one of our two major parties um, uh, just uh, uh, appealing to only one segment of our society, the, the white Christian population, every year that those two factors continue to exist, our risk increases. I can't tell you when a civil war is, is going to happen here, or even if a civil war is going to happen here. I can tell you what the risk factors are, and I can tell you that if those risk factors don't go away, every year the risk will increase. Um, and so to talk about the United States, um, you know, the U.S.'s democracy has been in decline by every, um, and every independent data set has uh, found this, has been in decline for the last five years. Um, and in fact, one of those data sets, the one that does measure inocracy and the one that has been used by um, the task force um, comes from the Center for Systemic Peace. Um, they downgraded the U U.S.'s democracy for the first time in 2016 um, as, a, as a result of um, uh, in part, uh, international observers to the election deemed it uh, f uh, free, but not entirely fair. Uh, it got downgraded again in 2019 as a result of the of the White House not responding to subpoenas and refusing to hand over information to Congress. Congress is the main uh, check on executive power here in the United States. And then by the end of the Trump administration, it downgraded the United States 
States for the first time uh, to an anocracy, to, um, you know, it, it dipped into this middle zone for the first time since um, 1800. Now, um, the Center for Systemic Democracy just issued its ranking of the United States or its rating for the United States for 2021, and it has increased it again. Um, but it's still not considered a full democracy. And, and every other data set, Freedom House, Varieties of Democracy, um, the Economist Intelligence Unit, um, you know, all is, is showing um, uh, weakening of, of, of America's democracy. I'm curious here because for many, many years, these kinds of organizations have ranked the United States as having, a, you know, a strong democracy. Is this related to something that is longstanding, like the Senate is not proportional or the Electoral College is not proportional? There's no direct popular vote because the things surrounding President Trump, in large part, the guardrails held. You know, there was ultimately a transition of power like you would expect in a democracy. And those other things, you know, the Senate, the Electoral College have been around forever. So when these organizations are saying the United States is not a democracy and therefore that's one of the risk factors for starting a civil war, should we just believe that wholeheartedly? What is going on there? Like, why is America not a democracy? Well, none of them say that America is no longer a democracy. Um, they'll say that the United States is a weakened democracy. It's 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 a partial democracy. None of them say that America is no longer uh, a democracy. So I want to make that clear. Um, what really has changed um, here in the United States is that um, we never had a party that was truly an ethnic faction. As late as 2008, white Americans were eager equally likely to vote for Democrats as they were to vote for Republicans. And that was in large part because the white working class ideologically was more attuned to the policies of the Democratic, Democratic Party. Um, that changed when Obama was elected and the white working class began to gravitate towards the Republican Party. Um, today, the Republican Party is 90 percent white. Now, what makes it what makes that dangerous here in the United States is that they now know they don't have the, the votes to win if the United States essentially is truly a one-person, one-vote country. If, if we have a really strong, healthy, liberal democracy here in the United States, the Republican Party, as it is currently configured, cannot win elections anymore. And in fact, it's going to get harder for them to win elections as long as they embrace only this one subset of the population because whites are declining as a proportion of the population relative to everyone else. So that's what's different is we suddenly have a party that doesn't benefit from democracy anymore, that doesn't want democracy, that's doing everything they can to cement in advantages that will lead to minority rule. And that hasn't happened before. So there's a lot there that I want to unpack. I mean, I think maybe the data shows different things, but looking back to, in Pew data, how white people identified between the two parties, in 1994, 51% of white people identified as Republicans, 39% of white people identified as Democrats. In 2019, according to the same Pew data, 53% of white people identified as Republicans, 42% of white people identified as Democrats. You actually don't see a big change in how white people identify between the two parties over time. 
there's a little bit of an increase around 2007, 2008, because the Republican Party was doing so poorly under Bush with the failure of the Iraq war and the response to Hurricane Katrina, that the Republican Party was just doing worse across all demographic groups. And then you look at more recent elections, like in 2020, even 2016, we see that Republicans are gaining ground with the largest minority group in the country, Hispanics, and that actually race has become less of a predictor across the last couple elections of how people will vote, and education has become more of a predictor. So if we're looking long-term and we're saying, like, factionalization of the two parties increasingly is what could cause a civil war in America, I don't actually see it in the data. Well, uh, so, I mean, I actually think that gives us hope. Latinos, in many respects, um, should find a a home in the Republican Party. They are more conservative on social policies. Um, You know, 10 years ago, the Republican Party said, you know, we should go after Latinos. That is, um, you know, that is our area of growth and that 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 would be a group that that would feel quite at home in the Republican Party. Yes, uh, you know there there was a, a gra- some Latinos gravitated to um, to the, the Republican Party in the last election, but the numbers are quite small, really quite small. And and I think um, because it was surprising, people like to make a big deal about it. But the fundamental challenge for the Republican Party remains is how how do you continue to cater to your base, which is very, very important to you, and they are white evangelicals, and also cater to non-whites, who many of your base, not only you know do they not want in the party, they don't want in the country. Um, and that is a real problem. So it seems in some ways like you ascribe a certain intention to Republican voters that, you know, they see the country is getting more diverse and therefore they want to end democracy. From polling, it looks like the majority of Republicans truly believe that the 2020 election was fraudulent because Trump and other high profile Republicans lied to them. And so perhaps perversely, they think that addressing that fraud, although largely non-existent, is the democratic thing to do. Like, what makes you believe that Republican voters are actually thinking, hey, let's end democracy to keep white people in power? Is that a broad swath of a Republican Party is thinking that way? So I'm really glad you brought up this question. This is a really important question. I The way that that experts think about it is there's really two players in this in this game on the Republican side. There's the Republican leadership, the Republican elite, and there there's you know Republican voters, your individual citizens. And they have different motivations. The Republican leadership wants to stay in power. They want to gain power. Um, you know, average Republican voters oftentimes they they want to take care of their families, they want to take care of themselves, they love their country, they want to do what's right. Um, and um, and the leadership is is where I place the blame. Um, we we call people like this um, outside the United States ethnic entrepreneurs. They are using ethnicity um, the way Milosevic used ethnicity to to catapult themselves in power. They are using fear. They are using um, the creation of of false threats to convince average citizens to support them. And and average citizens believe what they're being told. You mentioned that the Republican Party kind of contending with America becoming a more diverse nation. I looked at similar Pew data to what I mentioned earlier. And since the 
90s, both parties have diversified at basically a similar rate. And, you know, I think that's in large part because the country simply is becoming more diverse. So in 1994, 95% of the Republican Party was white, 75% of the Democratic Party was white. Now, 80% of the Republican Party is white and 60% of the Democratic Party is white. So you see like a movement of 15 percentage points in both parties. Is that another reason to be optimistic about us being a multi-ethnic, multi-racial democracy that doesn't have to face these concerns? So, you know, either the Republican Party embraces um, non-democracy, either it really doubles down and, and does everything it can to cement in minority rule, or it has to diversify. It has to diversify. So, so those are the incentives for it. And and uh, you know, boy, I I really hope they're not successful in in cementing minority rule. Um, that's that's the fight that we're in right now is to try to prevent that. Um, and if they aren't successful, they have to diversify. It it. Um, the survival of the party will depend on it, and 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 there are Republicans who who uh, uh, understand this, who embrace this, who would like to see their party doing that, and and I just hope, um, you know, that that more and more will more of them will come to that conclusion when they realize that the only alternative is to is to destroy the democracy that that I really do hope that we all love and treasure. I want to continue this conversation in just a minute, but first, today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. The two factors that we're still talking about here are a country being an anocracy, so not a full democracy, and then having factionalization instead of polarization. And you describe the difference between polarization and factionalization as being, you know, polarization usually relates to policy issues. You disagree over, you know, government spending. Factionalization pertains to identity. 
again, in thinking about how America has or hasn't changed that might bring it closer to political violence, identity appeals have been so common across American politics throughout history. And likewise, today, I mean, I think we do still have policy debates that divide people on COVID measures, still public spending and social programs, inflation, education, abortion, tech. Like, I'm curious if we really have changed so much that the policy issues are no longer dividing people. And it's all, you know, if you're this identity, you vote for that person. And if you're this other identity, you vote for this other person. Yeah. So again, historically, um, we, we know that that factions, identity factions, uh, you know, can be quite troublesome. We also have something called a super faction. Um, so when parties not, not only divide along ethnic identity, but they divide along religious identity, and then they also divide along an urban-rural split. So when you have really a country in every way that people would, or almost every way that people would identify themselves, where they live, um, what they worship, uh, and and you know what their their racial identity is if if everything splits along these lines so that there's no real intermingling at all um, those are the most dangerous factions um, and of and of course we that is also what we have seen here is identity politics always bad for democracy because like when you look at American politics identity politics are rampant and have been for a long time on both sides of the aisle. Well, I mean, identity politics is so tricky because how do you get consensus, right? Like, if you if, if you care about uh, if you care about issues, um, then then you can negotiate over those issues. If if it really is about identity, um, uh, then. First of all, the elites know they have a locked-in constituency, right? If you're a Serb and and you you buy into this narrative that Serbs have to stick together, otherwise they're going to be slaughtered by the Croats the way they were slaughtered in World War II, then you have nowhere else to go, and um, and and then your leaders basically have carte blanche to be as inflexible, as tough as possible, because um, they they aren't going to lose their constituency. And so that, I think, is why identity politics is so different, because you believe that you have to stick together, and then that gives your leaders... Um, you know, the opportunity to to essentially do whatever they want, knowing that that you won't leave. So I want to talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of how all of these factors would potentially come together in this nightmare scenario. How does a civil war usually begin? So I have a chapter in the book called When Hope Dies. And it really starts from um, the argument that most people don't want war. Nobody, you know, it, there, there are a few people who understand that they'll benefit from war and they won't pay the costs of war. Milosevic didn't have to fight. Um, he was protected by a security guard. He was going to gain all the rewards of, of the war because he was going to be president. Um, but most, your average citizen is going to pay the cost of war. They don't want it. Um, and so they will, they will push to pursue 
um, all sorts of nonviolent means um, to change the system. Um, they'll protest. They'll they'll engage. They'll go to the polls. They will vote. They will hope that the system that they'll have enough votes to win the next election so that um, they can gain their policies um, through the polling booth rather than through through fighting. And you saw this, for example, in Northern Ireland. Um, you know, the Irish in Northern Ireland were deeply unhappy with being part of, of Northern Ireland since it was formed in the 1920s. Um, they did everything. They protested. They had marches that were um, modeled after the U.S. Civil Rights Movement. They had work strikes. They, they, they were avid voters. They did everything. And nothing had an effect. So I talk about two two periods or two events that lead people to lose hope. And when these two events happen, the more extreme elements in a group start to have an easier time recruiting people. So the provisional IRA existed during all of these years of nonviolent protest. They were a fringe group. Most Irish Catholics didn't uh, didn't support them. It was only after they realized that nothing else was working that they began to gravitate towards them. And these two factors are um, a series of failed elections. So if you see um, that you just don't have the votes... Um, then you begin to lose hope that you can ever win an election. And I, and I do think the 2020 elections were devastating towards a Republican and the Republican leadership. Um, they had historically high turnout, I think higher than the last 120 years, and they still lost by almost 8 million votes. So what do you do in a situation like that? That's, that's hard evidence that you don't have the votes. And then the second thing I talk about is... Um, is nonviolent protests. Um, that That is usually the path that people take um, to try to affect change. They go out into the street, they have placards, they make their, their wishes known. And if the government refuses to negotiate, even if you have mass protests year after year after year, and in fact, even worse, if the government sends soldiers that then mow down peace, peaceful protesters, this has the effect of radicalizing people pretty quickly. Um, and, and that's when you tend to see a shift to violence. So on the election piece, I'm curious, it seems at this point, there's a good chance Republicans win the national popular vote in the House this fall. If that were to come to pass, do you think that would be sort of moving us in the right direction towards people having more trust and faith in our democracy? Well, that's a that's an awesome question, uh, because the reason they will have won in the House, in the Senate, if, if that happens, is because they have they have instituted all these very undemocratic me measures. They have, uh, for example, increased gerrymandering to to ensure that there's safer districts. And, and so in some respects, that might placate the Republicans because they they have gained power. It, the interesting thing is is it's not going to placate the left, who's going to feel like um, they're increasingly living. They're a majority who's living under minority rule. Although to be clear, I said House National Popular Vote specifically because that would mean that even even gerrymandering. Oh, the popular. Or oh, okay. I'm sorry. Yeah. Even any like the Senate, for example, which again. That's not the House and the Senate. There are all 50 states aren't up every year, so we can't really use that as a measure. 
But, you know, President Biden is pretty unpopular for policy reasons, frankly. Yeah. We see that in the polling. So in some sense, would a policy-based backlash that brings Republicans into power through a popular vote majority be something that would, in the framework that you're talking about, create a healthier environment? Yes, absolutely. If, you know, if the Republicans win the popular vote, again, that's hard evidence that, um, you know, they have support. Um, it, you know, it would be problematic if they were able to, to come to power, for example, because uh, the results of, of certain uh, state, you know, if the results of elections in certain states were overturned, if you had them come to power with undemocratic features. But if they are coming to power fair and square, that's exactly what um, people People like me who study this uh, would say, you know, that will lower the risk. In terms of what we're actually talking about when we say a civil war, I think a lot of people probably envision what happened in the first American civil war. But what specifically are you talking about? Because we have had political violence in this country, sadly, for a long time. We've had terrorist violence from the KKK. We've had political assassinations. We've had anti-governmental extremists, violent anti-governmental extremists. And in large part, law enforcement takes care of it. So what would happen now that would start a civil war that law enforcement wouldn't be able to control? The type of civil war we would see um, here in the U.S. is the type of civil war that we are increasingly seeing around the world. It's, it's sort of a 21st century type of civil war. And it is more like an insurgency. It tends to be decentralized. It's fought by multiple militias. Um, sometimes they're working together. Sometimes they're not working together. Um, they're using unconventional tactics like guerrilla warfare, like um, uh, domestic terrorism. So you would see um, something where, um, for example, government buildings and infrastructure rather than soldiers were targeted. They don't want to engage the U.S. military directly in any way. In fact, they want to evade um, detection. They want to evade uh, engagement. They're going to have targeted assassinations of opposition leaders, of um, of federal employees who are, for example, like judges who who are who are not sympathetic to to the cause. They're going to target minority groups if if their goal, for example, is is to try to create a, a white ethno state. So so they'll use these unconventional tactics and they'll they'll do it in a decentralized way. The the term for it that they actually use is called leaderless resistance. Um, and, and they would pursue that because that, if you're weak, if you're a weak actor going against a powerful government, um, which the United States is, um, then this is your only chance of success. Um, and I actually don't think they would be successful in either toppling the federal government or creating these white ethnic enclaves. But I do think that they could inflict a lot of pain on the United States. They could they could um, really harm our economy for a long period of time. Um, and and it would be very costly to, to Americans for a fairly long time. So... For people who are concerned about this, what can be done to prevent a country from domestic conflict or civil war before it gets going? Well, again, go, I'm going back to the model. 
full liberal democracies don't experience civil war. Strengthen our democracy. Demand that our politicians, both on the left and the right, um, institute real reforms so that we are no longer at risk of, of violence. And and then, of course, uh, you know, I do think the Republican Party at some point will have a reckoning. They know this. I'm not telling them anything they don't know. They understand that that they cannot continue to cater to white Christian Americans and still survive as a party. In the, and, and, and that's strictly demographics. Their, their constituency is declining. Um, and if they want to survive, they're going to have to expand, expand their tent. So you mentioned there aren't any examples of liberal democracies, even like backsliding and falling into civil war. Is that reason to believe that it won't happen here? Because for all the things we've mentioned, like you said, like there's not really a dispute that America is a democracy. Um, so I, I would say Ukraine is is the first one that we're seeing. Um, you know, re, Ukraine was a relatively recent democracy, um, but it you know it it did backslide. It had um, it had a. Um, you know, a, a president who was very much like an Erdogan, an Orban. He had no interest in democracy. He was replaced by a, a reformist, um, and uh, Ukraine's democracy increased a bit. Um, but you had, you know, Russian-speaking Ukrainians in eastern Ukraine who were going to lose out as a result. Uh, the the deposed president had been from their region. He had pursued preferential policies towards them. They were also, you know, the manufacturing class that was losing its jobs um, when coal mines were being closed down. And they're the ones who rose up to say, listen, this is, um, you know, we are losing and we are going to fight to prevent it. And so I, I think Ukraine um, is an early example. Um, and I and I think that, you know, of all the liberal democracies, the U.S.'s democracy has slid um, the most. India is also, um, you know, on this path with Modi. Um, and, and so I think in some ways we're a test case. I think this is a, a tricky question here, given the conversation that we've had. But can talking about the prospect of civil war ever be dangerous in the sense that it may make people more fearful and alienated from each other? And how do you weigh that risk? Because if you tell Democrats, you know, Republicans want to destroy the democracy, then they're going to be obviously fearful and alienated from perhaps all Republicans and see Republicans as an enemy as opposed to cohabitants of America. Yeah, I thought a lot about this, a lot about this um, when I was sitting in my office and I'm trying to decide, do, do I bring what we know on the, uh, uh, you know, from these models to the American public? Do we bring what we know about, you know, 80 years of civil wars around the world to the American public? Um, you know, could this create what, what we scholars call a security dilemma? And, and, and I made the decision to write the book for um, really for two reasons. One, um, not talking about it doesn't make it go away. Um, you know, I've been watching um, the the far right organize. I've been watching the far right grow um, bigger and stronger. Um, and then the second reason had to do with 
my my interviews with all of these people who lived through these wars who said we didn't see it coming we didn't see it coming and by the time it broke out it was too late to do anything and i mean that's the whole thing with with risk factors um it, if if you know what the risk factors are you have time to change them you have time to do something about it um and so i i don't see this as you know as um creating um the phenomenon or uh, i see this as oh my gosh you know this is what's happening we need to know about it so we can do something about it All right. Well, let's leave things there. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Galen. I've been speaking with Barbara F. Walter. Her new book is called How Civil Wars Start and How to Stop Them. My name is Galen Druk. Claire Bidegary-Curtis is on audio editing. Nash Consing is on video editing. And Emily Vanesky is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen.